the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James. Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. And so James says, I want you to remember, Job, that when times get tough, persevere. Lean into the Lord. Don't blame the Lord. Don't get mad with God. Sometimes we don't see everything that's happening. Sometimes, sometimes because our perspective is only this much, right, we don't always know what's going on and what the ultimate outcome will be. You are not God. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he shares with you some tough love that you are not God and you can't control everything. You don't see the full picture. Only the Lord does. You might understand part of the story, but not the entirety of how it will all play out. Pastor Gary encourages you to surrender your control to the Lord. Know that He is on the throne, and He will work everything together for good, and according to His purposes. You can trust Him with your life. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James, chapter 5, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. James chapter 5, starting at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven." Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, 
and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What we have here in the, in the closing chapter of the book of James are, by my count, but I suppose you could dig out even further than what I did, seven exhortations in these final closing verses where James just, you know, before he signs off here, he's, he's giving some exhortations, some instructions, some directives for us as Christians. And uh, so I'm going to go through these seven with you tonight. And the first one is that he calls us to wait patiently. And, and that's here in verses 7 and 8, where he says, therefore, be patient, circle that in your Bibles, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently, there's the word again, for it until it receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient, there it is a third time. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so the word patient or some form of that word appears three times here in verses 7 and 8. And uh, patience is not just a virtue. We go around saying that. Patience is a virtue. Patience is a virtue. It's also a discipline. Patience is not just a virtue. It's also a discipline. Now, it is a virtue in that when you know the Lord and you have his spirit within you, one of the fruit of the spirit is patience. In Galatians chapter 5 22 and 23, it lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Some of your rivals say long-suffering. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be patient. It is a virtue in our walk with the Lord. Patience should naturally identify us as belonging to Him because it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. But it's also discipline. Uh, You have to practice patience. You have to discipline your lives to be patient. And I don't know about you, but the more, you know, fast-paced our culture gets, the more impatient I become. Have you ever been frustrated at like the drive-through? You know, at some, you know, McDon- I mean, I'm not saying that I support McDonald's, but I do. Um, <laughs> my cholesterol's been a little low lately, so I just need to get it up there. And uh, so, you know, a, a good greasy hamburger once in a while doesn't hurt. But I mean, what's the harm? It'll just take me to heaven quicker. But anyway, I found myself impatient at, at the weirdest times. You ever been impatient at a microwave? <laughs> and we have everything at our disposal now. It's instant oatmeal, instant rice, you know, instant everything. And yet we are just some of the most impatient people. And so patience is also not just a virtue, it's also a discipline. The Bible commands us, here's a verse for you, Colossians 3.12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We are told to clothe ourselves. We have to put on patience. If you don't find yourself naturally a patient person, It is a discipline of your faith. So put on patience. Now, in the context of what James is writing here, he doesn't just simply say, be patient for patience's sake. He's specific here. He says, be patient until the Lord's coming. Did you check that out in verse 7? And again in verse 8, he uses the reference to the coming of the Lord. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord of the Lord. And at the end of verse eight, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so he speaks here about being patient, waiting for the Lord's coming. Now, obviously we're closer to the Lord's coming today than we were in James day. 
And James yet says it's at hand, which means we should always be living in the careful expectation of the imminent return of Christ. That should be the ongoing disposition of every Christian. We should always be waiting for the imminent return of Christ and living our lives in such a way that he could return at any moment. And that, that challenges us, John would write in, in his epistle, that challenges us to holy living. Because if you are living constantly with the expectation of the imminent return of Christ, I guarantee you, you're not going to be doing some of the things that you might normally do. If we continue to keep in the forefront of our minds and hearts, Jesus could return at any time. And he could. Jesus could return at any time. He could return at any time. It, it will help us to live a life of holiness walking in, in purity before the Lord because we know, okay, he could return any time. So I don't want to be found unfaithful. I want to be watching and ready and living my life in such a way that it honors him. And so James is saying to the early church here, I want you to be living in such a way patiently longing for and looking for the imminent return of Christ. And in that context, he's also talking about the idea of suffering. Because, you know, remember, again, and this is sometimes hard for us in in the comfort of our Western American lifestyles in Loudoun County to imagine, but there are plenty of people in the first century and on, including today, who are in constant threat of death and persecution and suffering for their faith. But because we're sometimes so far removed from it, we lose sight of the fact that there are actually Christians suffering around the world. And more Christians have been martyred for their faith in the last century than in the previous 20 combined. So, you know, we're, we're living in a time when Christians are persecuted for their faith. And with that in mind, the context here is, I want you to be patient because the Lord is going to return, but he links, he marries suffering with patience in verse 10. You can just glance ahead at verse 10 because he says, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. See how he marries those two? He talks about suffering and patience. Now we'll talk about suffering in a minute when we get to verse 10, but the idea here is he's not saying be patient for patience sake only. And he's not only saying be patient because you're waiting for the coming of the Lord. He's saying be patient in this lifetime because this world will be taxing at times, burdensome at times. You will experience suffering at times. So be patient because Jesus is coming again. That's the full context of what he's saying. Be patient, folks, because this world is sometimes troubling to us, right? It's hard sometimes. There are difficulties that come into our lives. There are hardships, the reality of suffering is a reality. And so in all of that, he's saying, be patient, even though you're going to experience some suffering because Jesus is coming again. And so we need to be practicing this and we need to wait patiently. And and this is why he ends verse eight by saying, establish your hearts, establish your hearts. And that word establish in the Greek means to make strong, to set fast. Uh, it's the idea of, of like when you, when you take concrete and you, you're, first, you know, you're first mixing it and it hasn't hardened yet. It's still soft, but uh, you know, eventually in, in time it becomes set. And so in a similar way, he's saying, listen, don't let your hearts be you know, tossed by this world. Establish your hearts, like set your hearts, be patient, Uh, Life can be burdensome and hard and difficult and include some suffering, but be patient, establish your hearts, uh, make them immovable. Uh, The Lord is coming. And within this exhortation, he compares patience to a farmer. 
And he says there about how farmers, you know, they wait, verse 7, for the precious fruit of the earth. They wait patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You know, a farmer doesn't get the produce overnight. It takes time. And there has to be this, you know, there's the the tilling of the soil, then there's the planting of the seed, then there's the germination of the seed, and then it begins to grow, and then, and then it becomes fruitful. All of that takes time. And so in that whole scenario, he's saying here, take a lesson from the farmer. Things don't happen overnight. Be patient in the face of suffering. Jesus is coming again. So that's number one. Number two, he says, avoid grumbling. In verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Um, In in King James, I'm reading New King James, but in King James it says, do not grudge one another. It's interesting. It's it's a take on on the Greek word stenadzo. And stenadzo means to sigh, to murmur, to complain. And he says it in relation to one another. He says, don't grumble against one another, or don't literally grudge one another. Don't have a grudge towards each other. Now, you know, when you, when, you, when you look in the Bible at the number of times the word grumble is used, uh, the predominant time that the word is used is in relation to when the Israelites grumbled against God. You remember that whole scene when God was moving them from Egypt after slavery, and they're in the wilderness, and they're on their way to the promised land, and they just start grumbling against God. They start murmuring. They start complaining. They, 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 they're dissatisfied with, uh, with the food. They're complaining about the manna. They're complaining about there's not enough water. You know, it's hot. You know, and they're, they're just complaining and grumbling, and they're, they're not grateful, which is the whole idea behind grumbling, right? It's the opposite. It's like if you're grumbling, you're not grateful. You can't grumble and be grateful at the same time. And so what happened with the Israelites, how they served as an example to us, when they grumbled, what did God do? He let them die. He's like, you, you don't like your circumstances here in the wilderness? Fine, then you can die here. You don't have to move on. You don't have to trust me for what's ahead. If you, if you grumble, if you complain, if you don't like my supply, if you don't like my provision, if you don't like my care for you, you can just die. And that's what they did. They died in the wilderness. And Psalm 103 verse 25 tells us that they grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord during the wilderness wanderings on their way from Egypt to the promised land. So the Lord let them die in the desert. He doesn't like complaining is my point. The Bible makes it clear that he doesn't like when we grumble. Now, in that scene with the Israelites and God, they're grumbling against God. Well, guess what? He doesn't like it when we grumble about each other either. He just doesn't like grumbling at all. So we need to stop this kind of thing. If you, if you complain about one another, you're dishonoring God. You, and, th- and this is why, you know, he adds here uh, at the rest of verse 9, Behold, the judge is standing at the, at the door. Because in effect, when we grumble about one another, we're judging one another. And we talked a few weeks ago about the difference, the difference between uh, judging someone and being judgmental. Sometimes we do need to be discerning in a, in a right judging kind of a way. But then there's a wrong judging kind of a way when we're judgmental. And we talked about the distinction between the two. And that's the kind of thing that he's alluding to here. You get judgmental when you start grumbling about people, complaining about people, gossiping about people. So stop that, because God hears it. He doesn't like when we grumble against Him. He doesn't like when we grumble against one another. So James is just kind of reinforcing this. Number three, he tells us here, endure suffering. In verse 10, 
My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering, there's the word, and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So here he talks about suffering, and again, he marries the idea of suffering and patience, and he uses two examples. Uh, He uses the prophets as an example, and then he specifically uses Job as an example. Now, first, the prophets. The prophets did have their share of suffering. I mean, you you look in the Bible, and you, you look at the Old Testament prophets, Um, most of them were killed. And if they weren't killed, they were certainly uh, persecuted. You know, a guy like Jeremiah, we just finished the book of Jeremiah a few months ago on Sunday mornings, and, you know, he was beaten often, uh, thrown into a pit, mistreated. Uh, He suffered a lot for the kingdom. Um, He was called the weeping prophet. You know, he wept over the sins of his own people, and they mistreated him for just speaking the truth. Uh, Church history says, not the Bible, but church history says that Isaiah was sawed in two. Um, So, you know, they experienced their share of suffering and persecution and death. And James says, just remember those prophets? You know, they were so faithful to God in the face of suffering that they still persevered. They didn't give up. They were faithful to God. And so to whatever degree you might experience suffering, endure it, endure it. And then he specifically mentions Job here. Now, there's a whole book of the Bible named after that guy. It's one of those books of the Bible. You know, if you've been here long enough at Cornerstone, you know that we go straight through the Bible from cover to cover. So, you know, I don't avoid Job. We come to it when we're going straight through the Bible. But I also would not necessarily decide to start there. You know, I'm going to hit it because we're going through the Bible. There's a reason why God put the book of Job in the Bible, but it's not the most encouraging book. I mean, at the very end it is, but there's still a lot of tragedy and heartache in the, in the whole thing that by the end you're, you're still feeling raw and you're feeling, you know, like your heart's breaking for this guy. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Job, basically here's a guy who was, in fact, in Job 1.1, it uses four words to describe this guy. It says that he was blameless. It says that he was upright. Literally, he was straight. It means in the Hebrew that nothing crooked about him. He feared God, that's three, and number four, he shunned evil. So he's a pretty righteous dude, you know, <laughs> sounds very California, but he's, he's, you know, a very, very uh, righteous guy walking with the Lord, blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. The book of Job tells us that he was married, he had 10 kids, seven boys and three girls, and he was very wealthy, not in terms necessarily of like uh, money, but in terms of livestock and um, and, and crops and vineyards, that's how they measured wealth in those days primarily. And so that's this guy's life. Now, we have the perspective of knowing something that Job doesn't know at the time, which is that Satan has approached God and asked God's permission to test him and torment him and tempt him. And God allows Satan. God gives Satan limited permission. By the way, Satan... You know, learn from this. Satan does not have free reign over your life. Okay? Everything, you know, 
Satan has been disarmed at the cross, okay? He's, he's not a defeated foe, he's a disarmed foe. He will eventually be seized, captured, bound for a thousand years, released again, and then thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever, okay? But, but he, he does not have this unlimited reign over your life. Uh, as much as he will try everything he can to oppress you, tempt you, it's not like, you know, Satan has free reign. He has to ask permission of God to have the kind of um, limited effect upon Job that, that he ends up having. And the reason that God allows this, you know, poor Job, but the reason God allows this, we, we have the benefit of seeing from 30,000 feet, is that it's going to serve to be for us an encouragement and a reminder of a guy who was faithful in the face of suffering. I mean, the book of Job is a tale of torment. This guy loses everything. He loses everything related to his material wealth, and he, and he loses all of his kids. All his kids die. The only one left standing is his wife, and she says to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? You ever wondered why Satan let her alone? Because, she's, you know, it's, Job went from with, with this wife, he went from the engagement ring to the wedding ring to the suffering. That's what happened. And so Satan's like, I'm just going to leave her there. <laughs> she's working pretty good. You know, so, so she, she's like this. She's not very encouraging at all. She's like, why don't you just curse God and die? And so Satan leaves her alone because she's a good weapon against him. But he's lost everything. And this guy, and he breaks out with, you know, sores and, and he's, he's just despondent. And then he has friends who aren't really friends. Because then his friends come to him and say, there must be sin in your life, Job. You know, that's the problem with you. You wouldn't be having this problem unless there was sin in your life. There must be sin in your life. It's sin. That's what it is. It's sin. <laughs> you ever had, you know, your Christian friends tell you that kind of nonsense? There must be sin. Listen, no mistake about it. Sometimes sin can lead to hardships in our life, clearly. But for people to always use this blanket statement that the reason you're suffering is because there must be sin in your life, that's a terrible thing to say. And so Job's friends were no friends at all. They misrepresent God. Their theology is whack. And, they, and they're trying to convince Job that there's sin in his life. Long story short, Job, the Bible says, never sinned against God. In all of this suffering, Job one twenty two. in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And so James says, I want you to remember Job. And when times get tough, persevere. Lean into the Lord. Don't blame the Lord. Don't get mad with God. Sometimes we don't see everything that's happening. Sometimes, sometimes because our perspective is only this much, right? We don't always know what's going on and what the ultimate outcome will be. You know, Paul would, uh, would uh, tell us in Romans 8.18, he says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ Jesus. And that's the right perspective we need to always maintain, that sometimes there will be suffering in this life. I mean, Jesus even said in John 16.33, he said, these things have I spoken to you that in me you have, that you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So suffering and tribulation should not surprise us to one degree or another, we will all experience it in our lives, in relationships, in, in health, in, in you know, all kinds of things. All right? It isn't that God has abandoned us. It isn't that God doesn't love us. It isn't that God doesn't care. And we can 
spend a lot of time asking why. And what I have found, even though comparatively speaking, I've not experienced the degree of suffering that I know a lot of other people have, a lot of you, a lot of others. What I have found is a better question to ask is not why, Lord, but what are you trying to teach me? Sometimes we become so familiar with Scripture that we forget these words were actually spoken by the Lord and that He actually meant them. How would your life change if you took the verses in James seriously? For example, James 1.27, which says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's so much to live up to in just this one verse. When is the last time you visited an orphan or a widow? And the second part is perhaps even tougher. How much of the world has made its way into your home? Are the things you're watching and reading and listening to glorifying to the Lord? Or are they perhaps staining you in ways you haven't even realized? We're all in this life together and learning and growing step by step. Pastor Gary Hamrick is making his way through James, which is absolutely filled with challenges to our comfort and complacency. But isn't it great? With each new message, you and I have the chance to grow more like our Savior. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection. If you're enjoying the opportunity to become more like Christ, we have more for you. Just subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you here next time for another opportunity to grow on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Mercy is waiting for you With every sunrise Hope is an open ocean Jump in and you'll find the cornerstones Your connection run towards your new Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.